Welcome to Pod Guard. I'm one of your hosts, Andrea Gazetta. I'm Katrina Davis. And I'm Jordan Lee Williams. And today we're covering a topic that is so close to my heart. It is the history of stained glass. Oh, yay. yay. I This is one of those times where I'm happy that I smoke weed because I forgot that that's what we were doing. Yay. <laughs> We're doing Andrea's whole profession. I'm so excited yeah. to hear about this. Uh, so for some of you who don't know, until I was very recently fired from my day job for reasons I can't get into because I signed an NDA agreement when they let me go, <laughs> um, I am no longer a professional stained glass artist. But I was a professional stained glass artist for eight years, uh, and I was a glass painter and designer which means that I used some of the techniques we're going to talk about today uh, that have been around for literally over a thousand years so I'm pretty excited to talk about it uh, and this is I think a fun departure from me yelling about what an asshole Frank Lloyd Wright is so I thought it would be <laughs> kind of fun to to cover something that I love instead of something that I hate um <laughs> Was this your artistic palette cleanser, Andrea? Yes, very much so. This is very much my artistic palette cleanser. And it's also, I mean, I'm definitely going to still yell a little bit today because <laughs> reading through the history of stained glass is really frustrating because a lot of times it's written by people that do not have a material understanding and I'll get into it a lot more as we go, but like stained glass is a very difficult material to work with and so sometimes in the historical documents that I'm reading first of all there's a lot of lazy history happening where people are just like we don't even know and it's like actually we do know because there's this archaeological evidence over here but then there's also these things of people that are like I wonder why they did this and it's like well actually it's because that is what glass will let you do so I'll get mm. into I feel like I have sort of a unique viewpoint as an artist and historian that actually has worked with this material and understands its limitations. So I'm actually really excited to talk about this. Uh, nice. But yeah, let's get into it. <laughs> yeah, let's get into glass. Let's get into the glass. So before we get into too much of the history, I think that the history of glass and the composition of glass as a, a material are interwoven and inexorably linked because in order to understand sort of how we use glass, you have to understand what it's made of, how it was discovered, and like how it does what it does. So what glass is, is it's essentially sand or a silicate mixed with soda ash, which is a sodium carbonate, and lime, which is calcium carbonate. And then it's heated to a melting point till it becomes liquid and then cools to form glass. So you can make glass out of just silicate. Like if you take pure silicate, you can make glass, but it would have a, t a melting temperature of 1723 degrees Celsius, which is 3133.4 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's really difficult to work <laughs> with. It's pretty fucking hot. Uh, so soda, when you add the soda, it serves as a flux, which lowers the temperature at which the silica melts. And when you add lime, it acts as a stabilizer for the silicate. If you just added soda without lime, glass would actually be water soluble. 
So it's really important to mix these things together so that you can use glass and it can have the properties that it has in the way that we use it today. And your drinks would not be as tangy. I was about to yeah. say, um, you use soda ash when you dye clothes too, don't you? Or something that's like it. But oh, I don't wait. Know. So one makes it hard enough, and the other one makes it basically <laughs> melt at a temperature that we can even reach without setting ourselves on fire. Yeah. So I mean, okay. glass to get it hot enough to melt it, you still have to even with the soda ash and lime in it to get it like molten to cast mm -hmm. you still have to get it pretty fucking hot but it lowers the melting point considerably in a way mm -hmm. where you can actually work with it and use it and if you imagine that like in ancient times you don't have a thermometer like you can't just say like oh this is hot enough and you also like don't even have like the very super ancient times like you don't even have enough wood or like materials to get fire hot enough to make glass melt so now when you say ancient times i just want to know the timetable what period are you talking about well let's get into it baby uh so oh google stop that is it. that um, would be jordan's question is like ooh, okay how old we talking like that is <laughs> real old so first of all, glass exists in the natural world as obsidian, which is formed when lava cools. So obsidian is mostly opaque. It's pretty brittle. It's not great for making windows because it's mostly black. Um, but in super ancient times, it was used for making knives, arrowheads, spear points, scrapers, and other types of weapon and tools. So our oldest obsidian tools date back about 9,000 years. So to about 7,000 BC is when people start using glass as a material, but they're not making it themselves yet. Um, it's difficult to pin down exact dates because I found a lot of competing sources, but the earliest man-made glass mo most likely dates back to somewhere between 3500 and 2600 BC. And they are from a Egypt and Eastern Mesopotamia. And the earliest glass objects were pretty much beads. They're really little. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So the beads were made by winding a very thin string of molten glass around a removable clay core. So basically you... You dry clay, you wind the beads around it, and then you pull the beads off the clay. Uh -huh. And so you have like essentially like seed beads or like, um, you know, super like small bangles. And the discovery of glass was most likely a byproduct of glazing ceramic vessels where they were, they're starting to sort of mix silicate to make ceramic vessels more waterproof. Um, and so it's likely that's sort of how you started to develop glass or find glass. And then using it as a material in its own right starts with these small glass beads. Okay, um, so like some sand got in their kiln kind of situation? Yeah. Okay. Well, and then, so one of the reasons that we find so much glass around Egypt and Mesopotamia is just because they have a lot of sand available, you know? Um, right. Try to keep sand out of that kiln. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I was, yeah. grew up in Florida. My mom hates sand. It's inescapable. It does get everywhere. <laughs> 
Yeah, I have visited Florida and you find sand in your butt crack like the next day in ways you're like, wow, okay, well, um, wasn't expecting that. Oh, yeah. My mom used to make me, I couldn't even come in our house in elementary school. I had to take my sh- basically everything from like my kneecaps down off outside. I had to take my shoes and my socks <laughs> off outside, like in the garage or outside because there was so much sand. <laughs> Did did your parents hose you down in the yard before you could come inside? No, I didn't get a hose down, but that's only because it's like loose. If there was more, if it was muddy, yeah. Yeah. But no, I was pretty okay. I've been hosed down as a child where they're just like, (laughs) you can't come in here like that. (laughs) Sand packs. It just like packs into itself and like clumps off of you. It doesn't stick like good growing dirt does. (laughs) Yeah. Um. So the other thing about early glass is like obsidian, it wasn't clear. It was really opaque. And part of that is because the sand that they're using all had these sort of natural impurities in it. So you couldn't really control, like you're not, you're not getting pure silica as a, Mm -hmm. as a metal or sorry, as a material is whatever sand you have around. So the glass or the earliest glass was sort of colored with, you know, you there might be a little bit of iron in the in the sand or there might be a little bit of potassium or whatever else naturally occurring in the sand that you're finding. And so it's tinting and shading the glass in different ways. So you're not really mm. getting clear glass. You're a lot of the colors that they have are like you know, it's like a brownish color or like an orangish color. They do have like blue. They find uh they find and develop a really brilliant blue. There's some oranges. But for the most part, you're getting these like dark green, dark brown, amber colors. Um, Um, And do we know now what minerals are like? Can they date or figure out where something is from based on what was in the sand or was made or anything like that? They're not dating it based on the sand, but they can look at sort of when different colors developed. So there's actually... Okay, I wasn't even going to put this in because there's so much information, but they actually <laughs> found glass beads from 3500 BC that are on like King Tutankhamun's necklace. Oh, wow. They're these like really beautiful blue glass beads, and they found the exact same beads in Nordic graves from around the same time, from royalty <gasps> like in they Nordic were graves. Yeah, so there is clear evidence that as early as 3500 BC, people from Northern Europe are traveling through Egypt and Mesopotamia, and there's trade that exists between them. The, mm. the hypothesis is that people from the north are bringing amber and trading it for glass beads, and then people, like, th- they chemically compared the beads from Tutankhamun's necklace and these Nordic... Uh, kings and they found that chemically they are the same they were made by the same glass maker in the same place that is so cool fucking awesome that that written language is only developed because of trade the Assyrians start uh, writing things down because of the trade routes that they have established with these other countries (sighs) So the first writing was people keeping books? 
pretty much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one of the first uh, written like pieces of writing that we have is uh, a complaint about uh, the wrong grade of copper being delivered. It's a freaking Yelp <laughs> review. <laughs> we learned nothing. We're the same people. Um, that's really funny. Yeah. It's it's really crazy. And so like at this time like it honestly it kind of blows my mind because even with so like when we think about clear glass today, clear like perfectly crystal clear glass wasn't developed until 1675. And the invention kind of brought about, you know, magnifying glasses and all of these, you know, the clear plate glass windows like large pieces of clear glass but for the most part all glass at this time it's like has like what's called a tint to it so it has even the clearest glass has like a bluish tint or a yellowish tint or a grayish tint and again that has to do with these impurities um the longer that you have glass at a molten state the easier it is to boil out and get rid of certain impurities and get a clearer Um. glass Today, if you're making crystal clear glass, they put it, it is at a molten state for 10 hours. Oh, wow. And what, they just like churn it or something? Where do you put it to keep something molten so long? They like have it on these plates. I watched a video of like how it's made and it's crazy, but they like, they have these like long hose and they're like digging in it, but it's literally molten. So you're kind of like trying Whoa. to dig around the glass and like move it around and not uh-huh. melt your tools because That's it's terrifying. so hot. Um, That's but then like the it, old cartoons where they would put a bunch of spicy something in a pot and they would stir the spoon <laughs> and then the spoon would be like burnt when they pulled it out. Um, yeah. <laughs> but wait, oh, I was going to ask class. <laughs> Jordan. Uh, that was good. I like when I get Jordan good. If it's a real it's a real personal goal of mine. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but what is where do they find like or I guess you kind of answered my question in terms of them just letting it burn that long, but do they find sand that clear? Like where is like boys to mend music video sand? Like does that make clear glass? <laughs> i don't know um oh my gosh it's okay so like getting into the chemistry of it i actually had a difficult time finding because i mean one of the biggest issues with a lot of these sources is that first of all like a lot of this is happening in ancient times and so the written language is again, like at this time, it's primarily used for trade, but we're not necessarily like writing down recipes. Um, If they are writing these recipes down, a lot of it has been lost. So no one's like, you have to get the best sand from Africa. Like no one is saying Mm -hmm. that. And also the third thing is that like craftsmen in ancient times, it is an oral tradition. So especially stained glass remains an oral tradition and it's actually a huge issue in the stained glass community is that a lot of knowledge over time has been lost because of the ebb and flow of the popularity of stained glass as a medium and just the fact that like people don't want to share their secrets so you would just you would go apprentice with someone to learn how to do this trade. 
But right. people don't want to like write down their secrets because then anyone can have those secrets. But they so unless seriously you're an didn't apprentice, write anything down. It. Not a lot of it. There's some of it will get written down, and we'll talk about why that's important later. Um, but yeah, a lot of it just never got written down oh and was God. passed orally from from master to apprentice. Uh huh. But then if those apprentices die or they don't tell anyone or, you know, because this thing is constantly happening, too, where like you're you're apprenticed. You go to your master. You learn everything that they can teach you. Then you leave and you start your new thing. But you also learn things like being a craftsman. You might experiment and you might develop mm -hmm. your own techniques and you might learn new things and then you might pass that down to your apprentice but if your apprentice doesn't tell anyone or they get shot with an arrow like that knowledge is just lost that's what i was about to say we didn't even get to the plague when this all started there's a it's a wonder we have stained glass at all now <laughs> like yeah everyone it's pretty that crazy. knows this could have died <laughs> absolutely well, and so and that's one of the most interesting things about asking a craftsman about tools and technologies from ancient times because there are certain things that have been developed particularly in uh, textiles or in leatherworking that craftsmen are still using these same kinds of tools like in leatherworking bone tools are still the best tool to use for working leather wow. and it's the same as it was you know at 3000 bc so when you ask someone who actually works with this medium what does this tool do why does this tool look like this they can generally say oh well that looks like a, a darning needle and that's why we use it like this like that kind mm -hmm. of thing absolutely i'm glad that you're doing this because yeah <laughs> We're going to get into it more, but exactly what you're talking about, Jordan, is something that I found really frustrating as a glass artist reading about glass history, because yeah. this thing is happening a lot where some lazy ass historian wrote a thing down. So, for example, OK, I'll get into it. I'll, I'll go get a little early into it. But yeah. in the fourth century, there's this Roman cup and it is red dichroic glass. Dichroic glass is a really complicated process. Basically, you have to like put a thin layer of like silver or gold over the surface. And it means that when you put the glass in the light, it changes color optically. So it's red, but it shifts color. It might shift into like bluish or purplish. Um, what? Yeah. And this was created in fourth century Rome. And when I read the article about it, they're like, we're not sure how they made this. And, uh, it was probably made by accident. No, it fucking wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't a fucking accident. Like, just because you don't know how to make this doesn't mean it was an accident. Was the first time they did it, was the first discovery possibly accidental? Yes. But if you see the cup, which I'll show you guys in a little bit, um, if you see the cup, it's so intensely worked. It is clear that whoever created this is a master at their craft. Like, this is not an accident. They know what they're doing. And this they were thing at least, happens like you a lot. said, trying something new and seeing what like the result was going to be or whatever. Yeah. And this thing happens a lot, too. So like in the eighth century in uh, in the Middle East, 
there is a guy who writes down like 46 glass recipes. And I saw an article that was like, and this is the first time the colored glass exists. And it's fucking not. We have colored glass as early as 35,000 BC. Like, yeah. Or sorry, 3,500 BC. So mm-hmm. like you're telling me that this dude in the 8th century invented colored glass? Like you're an idiot. That's obvious. We I can <laughs> see that that's not true. Like just because he's the first yeah. dude that wrote it down doesn't mean he invented it because there is an oral tradition that has been passed on from generation to generation. So he that's just an didn't preface that in about. the beginning. He wasn't like, "Look, I'm the first one that just felt like sharing we seriously talk about this all the time." <laughs> <laughs> I mean that is kind of what happens and that continues to be an issue in the stained glass community today um but okay we're talking about kilns let's get back into it guys I'm sorry there's so no. much to cover and I really want to make sure we we can cover it all um so at this time they're making tiny little glass beads in these tiny little kilns you know they're they're essentially heating it in a crucible and they're putting fire under it and they're trying to get it as hot as possible so that they can work it. Um, But glass is just because of the materials at the time, because they don't have thermometers, because they don't have, you know, a way to sort of like a reliable fuel source that they know is reaching a certain temperature. And because glass has to reach such a high temperature, I mean, clay and earthenware only needs to be fired at about 1400 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, glass to reach melting temperature can need to be fired up to like two to three thousand degrees fahrenheit to get hot enough to melt to get hot enough to like slump and be workable glass needs to be around 1475 to 1500 degrees fahrenheit depending on the composition of the glass um at that point you can sort of like melt it and form it but it's not molten in the way that it could like flow or be full on liquid. Yeah. So it glasses. Yeah. I'll talk about that later. Sorry. It's too much chemistry. Um, But so because of how difficult it is to make glass is really precious and it's only reserved for royalty at this time that changes in the first century. So first century BC Syrian craftsmen invent the blowpipe. And that made glass way easier to produce. It made it faster. And it also allowed for glass sheets. This is a really important important technological advancement to getting to stained glass windows. Because before this, like, you would just kind of dump glass and hope for the... Like, you can't really control glass. And this is... This is a weird property of glass But glass wants to be six mil or about a half inch thick. If you take a hunk of glass and you just put it in a kiln, no matter how big, like say it's like four inches tall or say it's, you know, an eighth of an inch thick. If you take any sheet or thickness of glass and you put it in a kiln and you put it to melting temperature and just soak it and just leave it for like 10 hours, it will, when you open the kiln, it will either have, if it's an eighth inch thick, it will have sort of started to shrink at the edges because it wants to be a half inch thick. Or it will, if it's thicker than that, if it's like four inches, it'll sort of melt and pull out to become a half inch thick. And the reason for this is that is just where it wants to be. I wish I could explain it better um, from a scientific molecular way, but just as a craftsman working with glass doing glass fusing 
this is just what it wants to do. So in order to create sheet glass that is like an eighth inch thick or thinner, you actually have to either stretch or create pressure within the glass while it is at not melted, but like workable, like molten temperature. So it's kind of confusing, but glass is not a... It's not really a true solid and it's not a liquid. It's what's called an amorphous solid, which basically means that like in a crystalline structure, in salt or sugar, all of the molecules arrange themselves in an orderly way to create really strong bonds. But in something like glass, it doesn't have like a specific melting temperature where suddenly it's a solid and then suddenly it's a liquid in the way that like a true solid does. It basically you can like heat it and it'll just become more workable like a putty so like glass just gets more flexible did you find anywhere in your research that glass may be malleable when it gets nervous like alex mack (laughs) because that's kind of what it sounds like Yeah, sometimes glass doesn't feel like performing and it has a lot of anxiety about it and it can go (laughs) limp on you and you just like never really know. Um, Yeah, glass is very finicky and difficult. Uh, But yeah, like it'll, because the, the molecular structure isn't fixed and like it's not all one way, Basically, the challenges of glass are that, like, if you heat it up too quickly, when it's still solid, it'll just shatter. Like, glass needs to be, to to heat it up and to cool it down, you have to control that temperature gradient, and you have to go really slowly, and you have to make sure that glass heats and cools all sort of at the same time, because if there's too much difference between like the outer edges of the glass and the center of the glass it'll just shatter in the kiln um Mm. so that's another thing that makes like the production of sheets really difficult so around this time they developed the blowpipe and so basically what you're doing is you're like you you heat glass in a kiln in a crucible you get it molten you take this long pipe with a hole in the middle you stick it into the crucible you roll it like you're getting spaghetti on a fork. Um, and then you blow air into this giant ball of molten glass and you stretch it until it becomes like an orb. And then you poke a hole in the middle of the orb and you can like push the glass flat and you start to get what's called a rondelle. Um, if you've ever seen rondelles, they look like the bottom of Coke bottles. Like you'll see them in windows where it's like, it almost looks like a boob. It has like a nipple on it. Uh, and the nipple is where the rod attached to when they made it. But it's really cool to watch. Um, I'll show you guys a video later. I love watching glass blowing videos. They are so ridiculous. <laughs> I have a it's friend, um, so my satisfying. friend and her husband, she's a photographer, um, but they also blow glass. And now his son, like for his like school project, picked being a glass blower and her and her husband got all emotional. He was like super excited Aww. about it. Yeah, the there's a really cool uh, Netflix show called Blown Away if you want to really get into glass blowing and watch ha, the process. What did you title this? 
Oh, I didn't title this. This is just the history of glass, but it's called Blown Away is the Netflix title. No, I meant that one. Like, did you have a hand in the naming of that documentary? No, I wish I did. <laughs> it's so good. It's well, it's a it's not a documentary. It's a glass competition show. So it's really oh. cool because it shows sort of like the the anxiety of like, oh, I got to do this thing and whatever. And it might break and it's all on the it's line. It's the top chef of glass blowing. It's very top chef. The thing oh. that I love about Blown Away as a show is that the glass community is really small. The stained glass community is really small and also glass blowing community is really small. So when you reach a certain level, when you are at a certain level of proficiency as an artist, you know most of the people that are at your level. Um, so in this show, it's really cool because a lot of the glass blowers already kind of know each other because they're so talented and it is such a rare art that if they haven't met each other in person, they might know each other online as right. a stained glass artist myself. Like I have a lot of friends online from other countries that are also stained glass artists that I know of their work and they know of my work, even if we've never met in person just because the internet exists. So it's pretty cool. What a niche yeah. community. You guys are like bowlers in the 80s. Like, I know. I know the top ones. Like, if I'm, well, we all know cool each other. It's cool to watch a reality competition show where people aren't, like, openly mean to each other and genuinely respect each other. Like, that is really satisfying to watch because it's like, they're not like, oh, so-and-so doesn't know how to do this. What an idiot. You know, kind of like I felt like Project Runway always had someone that was like, this guy's an idiot. And then w when you watch like Blown Away, they're all like, I really respect him as a craftsman. And so it just makes me really nervous to be competing against him. Like, it's just very nice. Well, like you said, that community so small. It's like those Project Runway people don't know each other. It's like, yeah. I it, maybe even if you went to the same school at the same time, you still wouldn't know each other. So it's like, yeah, if your ish is ugly, I have zero qualms about what all this is. It's like the show you're describing is like, oh, who's going to be on the show with us? Jerry? Like they all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like I've been known, you know, I've known Jerry for 30 years and he right. this and that. And like, oh, some of them. It's interesting sometimes because there are some people that are like professor and student. Where people oh, wow. will be like, I learned Ew. from him. Mm. So that's really interesting to watch too. But anyway, okay, back to glass. <laughs> this Sorry, is so glass I'm, adjacent. It's, I'm surprised it. that it, it probably took this long for them to get a show because they didn't want to share their, t their secrets on network TV. I would say that that might be part of it. I think also just like it is such a technical craft that understanding what is inherently challenging about it is difficult to convey in 20 minutes or whatever an episode is, you know? Right. Like they were like, we don't have enough time with commercial breaks to explain why this challenge is tense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like glass by its nature is breakable and that creates attention. But beyond that, it's kind of like, I don't even understand what they're doing. You know, like as someone who is also an artist who has watched glass blowing before and like met glass blowers, I can understand the process basically, 
but their like geeky attention to detail like they're freaking out about things that I don't even know what to mm. worry about because they just have such a high level of knowledge so it's really interesting <laughs> I'm imagining Andrea watching this like people watch football like what are you doing <laughs> he's all over the place <laughs> out there <laughs> Oh, you're using that punty? What an idiot. No. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's a lot like that. So when we get to making glass sheets, I talk about making rondelles. So in the, in the ancient Roman times, you have a couple things happening. First of all, they are casting glass. Um, it's not very great. It's Like I said, it's really thick. It wants to be about a half inch. So you're, what they would do is they would make like molds. They'd get the glass molten. They'd pour it usually into like a sand mold, but that makes it like really textured. So even if the glass would would be clear, it's not like crystal clear. You can't really see through it. It's not letting a lot of light in. Um, and also it's super thick. And so it's just like you're getting some light into your house, but not a bunch of it. And they're kind of putting those into wooden frames and kind of like putting them as windows, quote unquote. So I would call that like the earliest sort of window. Um Around the first century, because of the invention of the blowpipe, you're starting to get glass vessels. You're getting like cups. You're getting um, different like glasses and things like that. And glass starts to be, because of the invention, clear-ish glass as like a glass you drink out of or a glass that you use every day starts to become readily accessible to the modern or to the average person. So the average person can just like use a penny and go buy a glass so it is very common as a material um but there is still a lot of really intense artistry for like royalty you have uh mosaics which are mostly like opaque glass but still colored um you are getting some transparent glass again this is because of the blowing technique so when you use a blow pipe to create sheet glass you are reducing like you're using it how do I say this in a way that makes sense when you're using a blowpipe you're stretching the glass molecules out and the surface remains sort of fire polished it remains hot and it's not picking up any texture from a secondary surface so like when you cast glass anything you cast the glass on creates a texture but when you blow glass you're not getting that texture because the glass isn't physically coming into contact with anything else um, that makes sense yeah that eh, eh. so you're getting more transparent glass and you're getting you can color glass and still see through it and this is sort of the president predecessor this type of glass today still exists it's called antique glass is the name that we have for it. And it's primarily what I as a stained glass artist would paint on because I want a lot of light to come through. And then the paint is actually what is reducing some of the light coming through. But you still want to be able to see light through the glass. And if it has a lot of texture, you're reducing that light. So you want it to be nice and clear. It looks a lot prettier. Um, so around, it's hard to say exactly when we start getting like bigger sheets of glass. Like I said before, like you can't, the bigger the surface area of glass, like the bigger a sheet of glass you have, the harder it is to create because you have to cool it gradually. And like I said earlier, like it's hard to control the temperature of a kiln or of a space in ancient 
first century Rome because you just don't have the materials to control that with like electricity and thermometers and all that stuff. So we we're still seeing most of the glass we're seeing is still pretty small. It's still maybe like one to two feet in diameter or sorry, not one to two feet. Um, it's probably like you're seeing uh, rondelles that are maybe like four inches to a foot, but you're not getting like today you can make a glass sheet that is, you know, two and a half by two feet or whatever ish you you're not getting glass that big and part of that is just that they don't have a way to cool the glass evenly and so if you create too much stress that glass is just going to explode anyway and it's you might as well not so you're still getting like smaller rondelles smaller sheets of glass things like that is in terms of like flat glass um so by the end of the first century the introduction of glass blowing means that we're getting transparent-ish glass and we're also getting these sort of like clear aqua tints that I talked about before. Um, there's also evidence that we have colored glass, in, like colored glass sheets in the way that we think about it today. Uh, like I said earlier, colored glass is created through the oxidation of metals. So ancient people added different metals to glass to color them and around the second and third and fourth centuries we're starting to see more control over that process um you can add cobalt oxide for example to make a blue violet reds and pinks make gold but the colors that they're creating often lose color over time they're not super color safe they might change color with uv light um and so a lot of like the early colored glass that we have has been oxidized and it probably doesn't look exactly like what it looked like at the time. Over time, more color fast processes and brighter colors are developed. Um, one of the biggest issues, okay, I'm kind of skipping around here because I'm like getting into it and then I've I already mean, like gone you're allowed to get way. into it. We're we're like thirty minutes in. We're in, okay, baby. Cool, 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 cool. Yeah, uh, I just have this. Needs to be two episodes. It's not a problem. I I really don't want it to be two episodes, but the difficult <laughs> thing about Andrea. this topic is just that I know a lot about it. But then also, I've like I've already gotten into things because they came up conversationally that I wrote more about. So it's like I'm trying to like reorganize no. on the fly here a little bit. So one of the biggest reasons that I'm talking about first century Roman glass techniques and how they influenced stained glass is because around the first century, Rome had conquered most of Europe. So most of the stained glass we see is a direct descent from Roman glass craft. There's evidence that Asian and African craftsmen at this time are traveling to Europe to ply their craft. Um, around the third century, we're seeing people from Africa, Asia, everywhere else in Europe doing glasswork. But another reason we're focusing on Rome is because in 313 AD, the Roman emperor Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, which accepted Christianity. Ten years later, it would become the official religion of the Roman Empire. And as Christians began to build churches in the fourth century, stained glass gained recognition as a Christian art form. As an art history podcast, 
we do not have the time or energy to get into why and how the Roman Empire fell because it's a heavily (laughs) debated topic. (laughs) (laughs) I found so many maps that are like, this is how, and the dates for the fall of the Roman Empire are vast. Some people think it happened in like 345 AD. Some people are saying as late as 500 AD. Um, But it's clear that as... Christianity rose we're seeing also the rise of stained glass in Europe um as Christians start building churches they're putting stained glass windows in them so when Rome falls that is pretty much when Europe starts to sequester itself as the fall of Western Rome is happening um German different Germanic tribes are sort of taking over and setting up their own states or city states or countries as you call them things are kind of loose because Emperor Constantine wasn't super great at his job um there's a lot of like backstabbing people are murdering each other the Roman Empire is sort of falling and losing territory and so sort of over time Europe starts to sequester itself into what we call sort of the Middle Ages. Um, At this time, churches start to become centers for social gathering, replacing public spaces. And in fact, a lot of early churches were architecturally based on the Basilica or the Roman law court. At this time, church and state is kind of the same thing. Um, The church is in charge of if you get married. The church is in charge of sort of collecting your taxes or collecting a form of tax the it's mostly catholic or sorry i should say it's all catholic (laughs) i was gonna say can i jump in and just say when we talk about the church at this point this is before martin luther and the breaking of the catholic church at this point everything is catholic it's all catholic baby and What is so weird about this to me is that, like, Rome is kind of falling, but Italy remains sort of the seat of papal dominance. So the church, the Catholic church, almost becomes this stand-in for Rome because it continues to exercise power as an institution over people's lives and it still is centrally located in Rome and in, you know, Italy. But now all these city-states have their own secular kings and dukes and whatever else. But they're still paying homage in a very real financial way to Rome in the form of the Catholic Church. What um, year have you gotten to? We're getting into, like, the early Middle Ages. So this is, like, the third and fourth century uh we're about to get into the very first painted glass which is 540 ad painted stained glass i should say again the romans are already painting glass vessels but when we talk about like flat stained glass painting in europe yeah. 540 ad were there windows that weren't religious paint the painted ones so there are there are some because secular I actually, windows. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. Not to uh, because I wanted to just double back to what we were talking about about why Rome was the center of the papacy, and that mm-hmm. didn't happen until the 1300s. 
so in the Renaissance, we get this huge look back to Rome and all of the things are discovered. We are rediscovering all of these ancients. The marbles are discovered then, all the, the temples. And there was a push in Catholicism to take back the basically seat of power and create this uh basically architectural and artistic overhaul of what catholicism looked like and look at humanism and look at all these ideas so the papacy it, i can't remember which what was his name pope martin the 10th moved the papal seat back to rome where was it before uh, that? In 1420. Uh, was it in France? It was based in France. Okay. Um, I'm glad you said that because I am going to get into sort of the changes, but I'm glad you corrected me on that because the research that I did, I was looking like, when is the first pope? And they're like, the first pope was St. Peter. And I was like, okay, but like... Oh. Yes, no, no, no. The first pope, absolutely. Like Catholicism is much older than what Catholicism is older than the ideas that are happening in the Roman Empire. Like this is yeah. this is a, a basically an indigenous church that has been uh, blown out of proportion. So yeah, <laughs> you're looking at uh, it's it's. It's a it's an indigenous religion of Europe that has been uh, taken by crusades to other parts, but the the seat of power being in Rome is a hugely Renaissance idea. That is when it moved back. That is when all of those buildings, all of those, because uh, that is it. The church is a huge part of social interaction. And it's yes. a huge part of cultural life. So when patrons and rich people are building their churches, and then at the time the Pope was the most powerful man in the world. And so he's trying to renew the seat of power and, oh, okay, well, we, we had the Roman Empire. And so now I'm, I'm building the biggest papal home that has ever existed. And this is my power that I am showing off yeah and that I I'm kind of I don't want to jump ahead too far but that's gonna yeah, become yeah. really important later uh yeah. so we're gonna like kind of scoot it back and then we'll fast forward again um no, no, so no, the earliest yeah I'm yeah, really glad it, you clarify that Jordan because I was also wondering where the Pope was I'm joking I have no idea what you guys are talking about <laughs> keep going Andrea it's kind of like where's Waldo but with a big hat yeah. where and the fuck is the Pope points, there are three of them uh a lot of parts of what orgies. you said Jordan are also applicable to a Chick-fil-a fan franchise so I don't know what's going on um, <laughs> There's a lot of dominating power and showing, <laughs> spreading your... Yeah, there, there's a lot going on. So, okay, back to the medieval ages. So Pope is hanging out in France, doing what he do. Um, at this time, the earliest surviving 
truly colored stained glass windows that we have are from 686 AD. And those are at St. Paul's Cathedral, or sorry, those are at St. Paul's Monastery in Jero, England. And I'm actually going to show you guys an image of this because I feel like you need to get a sense of it. Ooh. Um, this is the earliest, like, hey, that's stained glass that we have available. It's beautiful. Yeah, I, I want to show this because you can sort of see there's all these, like, it features gold, blue, and green glass cut into very small pieces and encased in thick lead channels. It must be noted that this panel is an archaeological collage, which means that they found all the glass fragments separately and then put them back together using lead channels. This is how we think about stained glass today, though. It did have lead channels. Um, stained glass, in the way that we think about it, is essentially a mosaic of glass bound by lead instead of glued onto a surface. That's sort of the difference by which we say, like, this is a stained glass window versus a stained glass mosaic or a glass mosaic. At this time, um, the glass cutter did not exist. Instead, glass was cut with a heated and sharply pointed iron rod. So basically, you take an iron rod, you'd like throw it into a fire, get it super red hot, and then you draw it along the moistened surface of the glass and cause it to snap apart. Because of this, it's really difficult to control. So a lot of the shapes that you get are very like squares and straight lines or things that are sort of they almost look like it's just a crack because that's basically what you're doing is you're trying to control a crack right um then the glass would have to be what's called grazed which is basically like because wait a this thing tool they found that they the thing that you just took away that they put together mm-hmm <sighs> Like how far, how broken apart that, what it looked like. It was just that it had broken because it's a bajillion years old. Well, so basically they know that like that blue piece was all one piece of glass or that gold piece was all one piece of glass and it has broken apart, but they don't know like how those pieces were arranged into the window. They're just kind of guessing based on how much glass that they found. And so they kind of like, they're like, this is a, this is clear, like the way that this is broken, that this used to be one piece. So it's like an assembled example of what Yeah, it kind of is. Done. And so okay. like, grossers, how big is that? I would say it's like, uh, like it's pretty small. Like it, okay. it's it, like maybe a foot and a half by a foot and a half about. It's okay. not super it's big. It's bigger than I thought though. I thought it was like a maybe a large coaster or like a tile. So that's bigger than I thought. Yeah, the glasses, the lead is really thick, though. So like medieval lead was super thick. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it could be like a half inch to three eighths or sorry, a half inch to five eighths thick. And part mm -hmm. of the reason that the lead is so thick, the reason that those they're essentially like H channels, the reason that they're so thick is because you can't control the glass. So like you're cutting it and then you have to take what's called a grazer, which I have one because I work with glass. This is uh, these are called grazing pliers. So you use you use it this way to pull the glass apart and then you use this like hooked edge to sort of like trim the edge of the glass and you can just like like pull it along the surface to change the shape of the edge a little bit um, and get rid of like weird nubs and like little bumps and things. 
But basically they would use that like iron tool and just like roughly score it or like break it apart. And then they'd use these to be like, oh, whoops, it's too big there. And just like pull off chunks. And it's just really difficult to control that edge. So that's part of why the lead is so thick is like you can't control the glass enough to make really precise cuts with it. So it gives you cleaner lines to have something thicker. Yeah. So the thicker lead means like there can be like weird space or the glass can have like a weird like dip in it and you won't notice that because the lead is like hiding all of that. Um, So the earliest complete painted figures that we have are from Osberg, Germany, and they date from about 1065 AD. These figures are fairly sophisticated and they feature elaborate painted elements, but it's still done in that like flat medieval style where they kind of look like cartoon characters a little bit. Um, I'll show you guys this one too because I think he I want you to see medieval babies. Yeah, medieval they just look babies. kind of ridiculous. Medieval these guys, babies. These guys all kind of look like monkeys and hats a little bit. Like they have like really flat <laughs> faces and very stylized eyes and like they're just like I mean, there's something very cartoonish to them and like they almost don't feel like human beings. They're very stylized depictions of human beings. Wait, they're chubby, stylized faces and cool hats. Is it Eddie Pepitone? Are you describing <laughs> what do these babies look like? What's happening? Uh, are we talking about religious iconography? I, are you oh, pulling up the it. photo? Oh, I thought I had shared the photo like two minutes ago. Oh, this yeah. is the photo. Oh, okay. Oh, they do yeah. kind of too. Because they have yeah. that like narrowing of the jaw. Uh, part of that too, this this style in religious iconography which is so prevalent in the medieval work Mm -hmm. is a lot to do with the fact that religious icons are not supposed to be people these are people who are holy they are sacred so painting them as true humans this doesn't start until the renaissance until you get Caravaggio until you get uh Michelangelo until you get da Vinci working with models of actual people um so this stylized and overly simplified version is more to do with the fact that these are not supposed to be human beings they are supposed to be uh religious although the guy in the middle absolutely looks like a monkey (laughs) he super does a lot um i will also argue that maybe they just weren't that good at drawing yet and that's fine um i think especially with glass yeah so like i would say because i was gonna say what you were saying jordan is it like because they're skirting the line of a false idol kind of thing so it's not putting a human in the place it's like it's a griffin or whatever well, it's also, it's not supposed to be, like, you don't get depictions of the Virgin Mary as a young woman, as uh-huh. someone with actual physical skin, until you get into, you know, Da Vinci painting the, okay. the Virgin, because it would be considered blasphemous. Mm-hmm. Mm, yes, but I would also argue at this time that we just don't have 
realistic depictions of people generally really anyway like most people are depicted sort of as like I looked at them really fast and then did a drawing um (laughs) even like kings and monarchs and people that are actually existing in the time or even sort of allegorical stories that are not involving religious iconography also aren't really depicting like real people it's a lot more like they're stand-ins for the person in the story but it's not like a this is a real person you know like they're not looking at anyone and drawing them um so what jordan is saying is like correct but it it's also a larger movement and it's not limited to just religious iconography at this time they're pretty much that's how they're drawing everybody um but then also especially in the stained glass like style again it is like they can't really control the medium that well they're still very intricate when you you know there's painted elements there is i was about um, to say the eyes are good but you're right in terms of the control that they have over whatever lines they create and working with whatever that is for especially smaller parts of like the trim on someone's robe or something like some of the stuff from that one a second ago yeah and um let's see okay yeah so like there is detail but again you're seeing like the glass isn't like super controlled in how it's breaking. They're trying to fix things. They're trying to like use this sheet of glass, whatever. Like you can sort of see both how like the panel has endured time in terms of some of the breakage, but also how they can't super control all of that breakage in the ways that we can today. So during the medieval times too, there's a lot of like warfare and upheaval And glass windows were often broken and glass is really expensive and, you know, hard to make, especially like clear colored glass or sorry, transparent colored glass is more difficult and expensive to make. So they're not really throwing it away. They're just repairing it with those lead channels. So you kind of saw that in both of the panels that I've showed you. Um, But because people are like throwing arrows through windows and stuff, it's a big reason why there's just not a lot of glass today that's that old. It's it's like someone's at home and an arrow comes through their window and their grandma's like, ain't nothing wrong with that window. You better pick up some pieces. (laughs) And then they just put it back together again. Pretty much. Uh, Dave Foti, (laughs) who was my master like glass artist that I learned stained glass from, he told me that the reason that stained glass windows were invented are because people were putting arrows through windows and then you'd like get an arrow and like instead of the whole window breaking, just a small piece would break and then you could just like fix it. Mm. I don't know if that's true. I don't really think that that's why they were invented, but I think it was like a handy extra is like if secondary right usage. Yeah. Like, if an arrow goes through it, like, you can just repair it and reuse parts of it by adding more lead. During the early Middle Ages, uh, Islamic artists and architects are also developing their own glass craft. And part of this, again, is, like, around the 4th century, Europe sort of becomes isolationist because of the fall of the Roman Empire. So where, like, Europe used to be also part of the Roman Empire and part of, you know parts of the Middle East, parts of Africa, all of that was connected through trade across the Mediterranean Sea because of the Roman Empire. But because Europe is now more isolated, 
Um, some of the glass craft that the Romans sort of started at their time has also been interpreted in Islamic art in a different way. Um, so in the in the eighth century, this chemist named Jabir Ibn Hayyan wrote down 46 glass color recipes that I talked about earlier. And he's often in a, again, in like lazy glass history, he's credited with credited with inventing colored glass. I don't think that's the case. I think he's just the first dude that wrote it down. But he did also make some important discoveries in the brilliance of color and making new colors that I think are really important. Um, Islamic artists. What year is are, this? This is around the eighth century, so seven hundreds okay. ish. Um, Islamic artists, instead of using lead around this time, they're actually fitting colored glass fragments and thinly sliced agate into intricate alabaster filigree panels. So basically, if you've ever seen like an old drawing, those like fancy carved marble alabaster, like they almost look like grates, but in fancy shapes, they're kind of taking and they'll like make colored glass and then they'll just plaster it into place. Um, so they're making things that sort of look like stained glass windows, but they're using the materials that are available to them. Instead of using lead and sheet glass, they're sort of like cementing into these, um, like panels. Which long term better move for them. Stop touching lead so much, guys. Right? It's really <laughs> bad for you. Uh, the thing too is like, they can just keep these filigree panels like in a lot of uh arabic homes or like palaces or whatever you don't even have you don't really need glass you don't need to close off your space because it's warm there it doesn't get to be 20 degrees or whatever so like they don't necessarily need to close off their space in the same way that colder climates need so they might have glass in a few of the areas and then they might just have sort of like a grate that lets air come in and out as opposed to like okay. a window that needs to be opened or closed or whatever else so after a period of isolation europe started this thing called the crusades around 1065 ad um and this is when you start to get some more communication between European and Arabic artists. Like, yeah, Europeans are pretty much coming here to fuck shit up, uh, but they're also bringing their own craftsmen or sometimes bringing crafts and goods and things back to Europe and sometimes even techniques and abilities are coming back. And so, like... I couldn't find any sort of written source that's like, this is when it starts to get more colorful in Europe. But it's pretty clear that like from the historical evidence I found, Europe had these like brownish, grayish, greenish colors in terms of the glass colors that it could produce. They mm -hmm. went into the Crusades and they saw these like very brightly, like they have brighter blues and brighter reds and more like colorful variety of colors and it seems like that influenced the european glass i couldn't find a source that told me that so this is my speculation but it seems from the evidence available that this had an impact on european glass as well i like that you were like not only are they murdering people in the name of religion but they are also stealing from those people and taking it back to their home and making yes. it brighter and prettier <laughs> that's 
pretty much how white people like to do shit. Uh, that's kind of our whole deal. <laughs> it's yeah, like, that's just European history in three sentences. Pretty much. We fuck shit up and take your shit. Like, that's how we do. So between the 12th and 14th centuries, we start to see the rise of Gothic architecture, which is like where stained glass is like the top dog. Uh, this is when the medieval church is the most important patron of the arts and stained glass windows are the most effective way to illustrate Bible stories to the mostly illiterate people of medieval Europe. Stained glass windows are basically the OG veggie tales. <laughs> <laughs> There's no evidence that I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> at this time, I mean... This is also happening before the Gothic period, but around this time, you know, pagan and Christian iconography are sort of continuing to meld together, which is something that was also happening earlier. Um, pretty much from the earliest beginnings of Christianity, they have sort of blob-like adopted pagan iconography and melted it into the Christian belief system in order to create sort of this, like, language of symbolism um so we're seeing a lot of that and then there's this dude named abbot suger of saint denis who is the abbot of the royal abbey outside of paris in 1127 a.d and he's this influential writer and philosopher guided by this thing called the mysticism of light um it's this belief that light was a natural expression of the divine so practitioners believe that allowing more light into spaces of worship would fill people with a sense of wonder that would help them think about and understand God. So this is part of the Gothic, like the whole Garth, Gothic, Garthic. Oh my God. It's just like Wayne and Garth making churches. Um, <laughs> this is God part is of- God is totally righteous. <laughs> Party time! <laughs> Excellent! <laughs> uh, so, this belief that, like... All the choirs like, just sing Bohemian Rhapsody. I'm sorry. <laughs> Actually, that would be beautiful in a church. I would, I would love go to hear to Bohemian this Rhapsody. I would, I would go, go to a Gothic church. church. The basement religion. I love it. <laughs> so, during the Gothic movement, like, part of their belief is basically, like, we need big windows. We need a lot of space. We need to let people know that God is here. And so they start building <laughs> all of these huge-ass windows. But then mm -hmm. what are you going to do with all those windows? You got to put glass in them. So right. that is when stained glass is, like, you're getting all these, like, crazy patterns and, like, really intense, like, ornate, tiny little glass pieces. And it's just awesome. I mean... It's fucking cool. Yeah, I it was nowhere near this old, but I grew up in a super old church that had all of these little like slivers of stained glass all over the place. And it is pretty cool. <laughs> I want to say. Here's like an example sort of of like Gothic style. I um, love the idea that an abbot came in and was like, I'm just not feeling God in this place. <laughs> I really need to open it up, let some God in here. This image is a lot smaller than I wanted it to be. Um, oh, wow. But it's still really pretty. There we go. We get the idea of it. But so at this oh, yeah, time, it's like, not blurry. That's good. 
there's a lot of like Look intricate scroll work there's a lot of red and blue are sort of the dominant glass colors um reds blues greens golds like very bright colors and figures are still really small and they're sort of existing in these like small little spaces um it's not until like Jordan was saying, like until we get into the Renaissance that we see larger figures and more complicated scenes. And it's like every little scene might only be like a foot by a foot and it's expressing like one Bible story. So you can like right. point at that and be like, this is Jesus, you know, the shepherd. And this is why he's leading his people, whatever. Here's Jesus with the fishes and the loaves. So like every little scene, you might have multiple small scenes in a window and every little scene would illustrate a moment that the priest or whoever could point to and be like, this is what's happening here. Well, so at the time, all religion, all Catholic services were in Latin in a population that did not speak Latin. So <laughs> it was, it was, you mostly like you went to church and you looked at the illustrations of what the priest was talking about because yeah. it was very much does not matter if you understand it, does not matter if uh, you can read it or hear it or know what the priest is saying. You're there, you're at church, that's all God needs. So the illustrations were to help because people couldn't read and people couldn't understand Latin. <laughs> Absolutely. And I have yeah. to admit at looking at some of them, even when you're younger, it's like, Oh yeah, I know that story. And I know that story. And sometimes you're like, who is that guy? That's a deep cut. I exactly. don't know what this one is. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. There's definitely a lot of deep cuts in Christianity. Like <laughs> call me up Ruth and Naomi. What up? <laughs> um, <laughs> Another thing, too, is like at this time, when we think about glass as a craft, at this time, studios like glass craftsmen are part of traveling studios and they're made up of glass makers, people who cut and glaze glass. And then they're also painters. Now, I couldn't find evidence saying that these were separate tasks, but I know today from the studio that I work at. Um, the larger the studio you are in, the more likely that you have a more specialized job. So as a glass artist, my job for the most part was just painting. Can I cut glass? Yes. Can I solder? Yes, but very badly. But there are master technicians who their entire career is just soldering windows. Yeah. Um, and glazing is what we call it when you solder a window together. Yeah, it's called glazing, which was very confusing for me the first time I heard it. Um, but yeah, so master craftsmen are traveling in these traveling studios. And when a new church is being built, it would take several years to build a church. People would be working on it for a long time because it's all being done by hand. So you have just all of these workmen in the area. And so these traveling studios would go to a church that was being built. They would make the windows on site and then they would leave and go make windows somewhere else so during the renaissance time as jordan said earlier uh people get a lot better at drawing so that's pretty cool um although the glass is still biblical people are shown in period clothing and it's so specific that we can actually date windows based on what clothing people are wearing because the fashions change so often and because artists are actually drawing from life you can say like 
this period, you know, this window was drawn or created around this time, plus or minus, you know, 10 years. Um, we're also, people are building, drawing things in perspective. They're drawing people with complex emotions and like Jordan was saying earlier this is you get the rise of humanism where people start to celebrate people <laughs> instead of seeing biblical figures as just like this these sort of totems you're seeing them as human beings and considering their emotions um we're also starting to see more secular stained glass like family crests seasonal allegories show up um things live like this is fall it's fall yeah. season here's winter here's summer <laughs> stuff like that um, what stained glass goes through a pinterest moment pretty much yeah <laughs> she gets a little basic uh and <laughs> like fall looks and then like wait is that are those cupcakes that look like <laughs> grover from sesame street what's happening what's going on yeah, pretty much. Um, the way that stained glass is practiced as a craft also changes because this is when studios set up shop. So at this point, workshops stay in one place through several generations. They're often attached to a cathedral that constituted their major employer. Um, this is when you see the rise of things like silver stain, which is basically like a, it's a silver nitrate that you can actually paint onto the surface of glass and then you fire it in a kiln and then you wipe away the terracotta and you wipe away the sort of the residue and you're left with this like golden uh, coloring. Um, I should say, I guess I didn't explain it earlier. I had in my notes to explain it and I forgot. But basically the process of painting stained glass is a very technical process. Stained glass paints are different types of metal. Um, we talked about earlier how colored glass is given color by oxidizing of metal. Stained glass, painted glass is also added color by oxidizing of most metals. Um, so you put paint on the surface of glass, but it's mixed with a silicate. And then you actually fire the glass again in a kiln or you heat it up in some way and the silicate melts and fuses to the surface. So that's what's called is it's called vitreous paint. It's the kind of paint that I used at my work. And again, it's this complicated process, but it's why we have painted stained glass that was created almost, you know, 1500 years ago that we can still see today. It's because it is actually becoming the glass, if that makes sense. Oh, wow. Yeah, like there's no color to come off. It's like a part of it. Yeah, it's like a part of it. I mean, you can have like paint failure over time. And usually what that means is that it wasn't fired in the kiln correctly or that there were possibly other corrosive elements mixed into the paint. So sometimes mm -hmm. over time, like the the painted surface will flake off and you will have sort of like paint failure. Um, that can also happen because of things like acid rain and other sort of like physical geological elements that corrode the glass. But for the most part, it's a pretty stable medium. Um, hmm. But it's also like, 
if you th- like every time okay every time i think about this i'm just like but they didn't have thermometer like they didn't have a kiln they didn't have just like a well that's what i was oh. thinking of earlier when you were talking about i forgot i, I remembered how, like, what i oh that was jordan i was wondering what the <laughs> Just me popping in. No, it's um, just making me think of like how you would test that, Andrea. Is like, what are you sticking in a fire to make sure it's hot enough to melt glass? Like, and or how I long actually, did you let something burn? I think I can answer this one. And oh, it goes please. Back to, yeah, it goes back to uh, asking people why things are the way they are. So at the time, because uh, we're talking about. Uh, medieval and the renaissance um and even pre-medieval but there are we've found certain recipe books where it's not just a recipe for food it's a recipe for a, a thing to get rid of boils or you know you're talking about uh these kind of like almost almanac type deals for the homemaker um but they would use things like uh, okay, so the example that I know is when you say an Our Father while you are heating up your oven and you put your hand in the oven and how far you get in the Our Father is how hot or cool your oven is. What so the if fuck? you want, <laughs> yeah, so Our Father who art in heaven depending on how far you get into this prayer before you have to take your uh, your hand out of the heat tells you if it's hot enough to bake bread or if it's cool enough to roast something for several hours. So there are also different ways in which prayers are used as timekeepers. And at the time when you don't have access to clocks, when you don't have these kinds of things, having a steady chant that you know and you know how long it takes so these are how recipes and times for kneading dough baking bread uh making pastas these were all kind of you know okay you're gonna say two hail marys and you're gonna and then then this will be that's as long as you need to knead this dough um Holy shit, every bread maker went straight to heaven because they had done (laughs) all of the Hail Marys. (laughs) (laughs) So there are certain things that happen that we lose touch with in a culture this many centuries removed, but they might not have had thermometers, but they had different ways to gauge that understand yes. And then they might not have had timers, but they had different ways of keeping track of time. That's fucking incredible, Jordan. I'm so glad you shared that with us because I was like, I'm like reading through this and I'm like, how the fuck did they know? How did they know? That's <laughs> and I don't insane. Know that's, I don't know if that's how they did it with glass making, but I know that in keeping house and home and in keeping um, like all of the different, and it, it, it's interesting because it does break down we think of a lot of the past as like primitive or superstitious, mm-hmm. but they were working with what they had. I feel a lot better than we are. 
Uh-huh. Well, I mean, I think just from looking and we'll we'll post this stuff on the Instagram page, but just from looking at the level of things that they could create with the tools that they had available. There are things like I'm this Roman cup that I saw. It's like I couldn't make that today. Like I have no idea. Like it's <laughs> fucking incredible. And to think that some dude who like didn't have a thermometer and had never seen electricity was just like, oh yeah, I could whip that up for you. Like what the fuck? That's insane. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could remember because there's a Chinese pottery has like the longest history of just cultural not stakes but it's there's just such a huge rich cultural history of Chinese pottery and it's the same thing where you have these kilns and these artisans who know exactly how to do all of these beautiful and amazing things yeah, and I like would say- Andrea, if you look at your paintings, like you're amazing and talented, but you don't necessarily whip those up like you can do it. <laughs> but the idea of it just being someone that was that talented that long ago and yeah. that on top of like you're saying, doing so much with not what we consider like base level tools and stuff. But Jordan, what you're saying totally makes sense about timing, but the intensity that they need for glass, it's like what you get to like hour and then you just start screaming and it's ready. (laughs) Like it's so hot. That totally makes sense for bread. Like you'll like maybe lose some arm hair. (laughs) Yeah. Like do you sacrifice? Okay. This is another thing. This is another thing I want to bring up. As long as we're talking about sacrificing limbs here. Um, (laughs) One day when I was at work at my first glass studio that I worked with, my teacher Dave Fody and I were talking and hanging out and we were looking at these beautiful old windows that were made in the middle, you know, like the 1800s. And I go, Dave, these windows are just so beautiful. Why don't we make windows this beautiful anymore? And he goes, fun fact, child labor. Um, (laughs) (laughs) they're teeny tiny hands. Yeah. So if you look at around the Renaissance, this starts being true. And in the sort of Gothic revival that happens later, this is very true. But basically, like I talked about before, there's a system of artisans and apprentices, um, and child labor at this time is considered to be part of your apprenticeship. You, you might be apprenticed to someone when you're as young as eight or nine years old. So you're living with them, you're cleaning their house, you're helping them with small tasks, and you're learning the craft from them. Um, apprentices are mostly unpaid. Your labor is considered to be a part of your learning process and a part of your payment to learn the craft and so a lot of old windows you'll see around like the 1800s especially you'll see that the faces and hands and figures are clearly painted by a different person than the background spaces um and a lot of it is surmised that like the master paints the figures and then his next apprentice might paint 
the the fabric and his next apprentice might paint the background and his next apprentice might paint the sky and so you have several different hands in the same window and the first Mm. studio I worked for this is actually how we would create windows as well when I first started I only did borders um, and I only did trace painting which is just like the outlines and as I progressed I started designing windows I started um painting more buildings and doing more shading and things like that but when I would work together with my team we would sort of divvy up and one person would do borders usually my friend Peter because that's what he liked to do I like to do like plants and animals and stuff like that or fabric I really enjoyed I love doing faces um, but the master would generally do the face and because like I was still new I generally wouldn't do faces I'm pretty good at faces we'll post them in the Facebook group but like That's something that you have to work up to. Uh, So you can sort of see that in old windows, especially in like when you're thinking about a guild, when you're thinking about several people making a window together, there's a lot of hands in that. Um, And so, yeah, child labor isn't a thing we do anymore, but it was a very cheap and affordable labor source, which meant that you didn't have to pay as much to get several little hands on one job. Yeah, fun facts. uh, Fun. I was about to say fun. More recent child labor story. I used to work at a fast fashion place where right before um, everything shuts down for Chinese New Year, she would like be on the phone with people, being like, "You get all those little hands going, and might better get my shipment before y'all shut down." Like she would say stuff like that on the phone. Oh my God, Katrina! What? That's horrifying yeah. <laughs> i worked at a wild place <laughs> it's wow, not okay how long ago was this uh i mean 10 years maybe wow that's so that's crazy, what i mean dude. for you to be like oh we don't use child labor anymore i was like like since the 2000s or okay for over 21 rephrase. like what are we doing <laughs> technically legally in america we're not supposed to use child labor anymore do we still do it especially on farms if you grow up on that farm absolutely i had to pick rocks out of a field when i was nine but like technically legally we don't have child labor uh whatever chores your parents make you do i guess doesn't apply (laughs) or or if you're um, a small business yeah yeah or get put on a farm in california and then work to get your first cell phone right before mexican mother's day (laughs) yes i've had some crazy jobs you have had some insane jobs (laughs) katrina (laughs) babysitting never counts for some reason but i don't know why i as an 11 year old should be watching anyone that's a horrible idea (laughs) but uh yeah child labor is a thing okay So during the Renaissance, another important uh, invention is the diamond cutter, which is what we use today. Here, I'll show you guys. This is a diamond cutter. Yeah. Men using them too. So if you think about, we were talking earlier to cut glass, people have to like heat this rod and they get it really hot and blah, 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 whatever. Now there's this tiny little wheel. It's attached to a long stick. You create pressure and you can actually move the stick around the surface of the glass. And you, what you do is you create a score. And the score is kind of telling the glass where you want it to break. But like I talked about earlier, glass is a finicky bitch. Glass will do whatever the fuck it feels like. This is not a guarantee. 
And people all the time are like, why can't you just use a saw to cut the glass? You can. It's really <laughs> annoying. It takes a really long time. If you can cut it with a wheel cutter, it's actually faster to cut glass by hand a lot of times than to cut it via machine. You can use nowadays, you can use like a water jet. But again, if you're doing really simple cuts, it's actually faster to just cut something by hand than it is to like program a water jet and wait for it because your water jet will also break a lot of your glass and waste a lot of your glass. Um, so the invention of the diamond cutting like wheel like allowed people to make... Glass. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Katrina. I know. You just sound like the Bob Vila of glass right now. Like, you're going to want to use thing. it, but it's not going to work. Like, I'm going to tell you, this is the... It's so funny. It is. It's really funny because, like, I've, you know, I've worked with glass professionally for eight years. And it is interesting to see people who have never worked with glass before, like, roll up into a comment section with a lot of opinions um, and just be like, why don't you just use a saw to cut it? I've, I've seen people like tell glass artists that they should be using scissors to cut glass and they're no. an idiot. You can't do that. What kind of scissors do these people own? <laughs> they're those fancy scallop ones from kindergarten. Do you not understand <laughs> glass or scissors? Which one? I need Both. to know. All of the above. Like, so I talked about before that glass isn't really a solid. So like you can't just like cut glass with a saw it'll just break because it's not there's no like grain there's no regularity to the ways that the, that the molecules are held together so you just can't glass is more of a super cooled liquid than it is a solid so the way that the molecules are arranged like you have to kind of just give them a hint of where you want them to go and then they're going to do whatever they feel like anyway um you can Google how to cut glass. I will also on Instagram probably be sharing a lot of my friends are professional glass artists and they have a lot of videos of them cutting glass. I'll probably share some videos of people cutting glass because it is very therapeutic, but I think it'll give you a sense of like how and why glass is doing what it's doing. Um, but I yeah. I also used to watch all of your, uh, this is what I do at my job videos <laughs> that you would make. And so yeah. I'm very glad I did because I feel like I understand uh, visually a lot of what these processes look like. Yeah, I would say if you want a really in-depth explanation of stained glass painting as a process, I actually have a pinned story on my Instagram page at Andrea Gazetta, and it will show you step by step how I paint a face. So it's really cool. Um Sometimes I it use it for really my cool. own memory. <laughs> <laughs> if it's been a while since I painted something, I'm like, I need a refresher and I'll like check back in with it. But it, it'll show you like, I think all in all, it's like, I want to say like 50 to 60 Instagram stories and it'll probably take you 20 to 30 minutes to get through. But I don't know. It's interesting. I, it's definitely worth it. I really enjoyed it. And I don't even know that it's that long. Maybe it, I guess Unless if you're just like flipping through it. really fast. <laughs> I don't think I've ever watched it in real time. Like I know I explain everything and each story is like how 15 seconds or whatever. And there's probably like 50 stories. Um, so I guess, yeah, that's not 30 minutes. I don't know how math works, but usually what I do is I flip <laughs> through it really fast and just like watch it 
Like there's something satisfying to me about watching something get made. So like sometimes I'll like look at it and just flip through it because I think it's satisfying to see something go from a blank piece of glass to a finished piece of glass. Um, Absolutely. So that's how I generally watch things like that, even if I am the creator of those things. Um, so, okay. So we're talking about Renaissance art. So by the 15th century, the city of Bruges, Belgium had 80 stained glass operations is a found like a solid number. So there's a lot of glass. We're still talking about glass in the Gothic age. There's a lot of glass happening. There's so many windows that need to get made. There's old windows that need to be repaired. There's all these like churches, whatever. So much glass, so many glass artists. <laughs> Like, if you think about it, if you think about, even if they're saying had 80, so one city had 80 stained glass operations, which means that there's at least one artist and probably also one or two apprentices that were just like cutting and creating glass. Um, You couldn't swing an iron rod without running into a glass (laughs) worker in that town. (laughs) You couldn't, yeah, poke someone in the eye or have someone burn their hand making bread without... (laughs) glass artists um yeah there's a lot of glass artists i would say that there are not this many professional glass artists today um and most of these glass artists are employed in making like large-scale glass work like making windows making you know things for homes cathedrals things like that um that's not necessarily i'm not sure if they're including like glass blowers in that or not I would assume that they would have to because someone has to produce the glass um but yeah that's a lot of glass artists definitely a lot more in one city than exists in probably Belgium today um so when did it all go wrong Jordan kind of hinted at this earlier with (laughs) the rise of the Protestant movement so stained glass yeah. started to rapidly decline as an art form in the 1500s. In 1509, King Henry VIII says, fuck the Catholic Church and starts his own thing. Um, Martin Luther in 1517 nails his 95 theses to the door that are criticizing Catholicism. And a lot of the criticisms of the Catholic Church have to do with how much ornate wealth the church is accumulating essentially the church is accumulating wealth and like priests are wearing gold garments while people starve so like people start to get really mad about the church and they're like what if we could read the bible what if it wasn't in fucking latin what if we had a personal relationship with the written text and a huge part of that is just that like the printing press was invented and the the bible starts to become readily available you can translate the bible into german you can get your own copy you don't need a priest yelling at you in latin to understand the bible so it's funny that they got power because they were learning to read and they realized that they needed it because the priest couldn't read the room. Leave your gold at home if people are hungry. You fucking idiot. Lay low. This is like what ends every Martin Scorsese movie is someone being too fucking loud with their money. You idiots. (laughs) What do you, what do you got your wife in a folk fur coat for? Give me that coat. Oh. I'm so mad. They're so stupid. <laughs> well, That's exactly also, what happened. The Catholic Church was 
making people pay to get out of purgatory. Yes. They also, this is low-key the remake of The Dark Crystal. Like, I'm into this. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah, I mean, like, okay, so the Catholic Church is doing some bullshit. Like, they're making people pay <laughs> to get out of hell, which basically they're like, I don't know, you can commit whatever sin, and then if you just pay money, it's fine. Like, they're so incredibly corrupt. They're saying, right. like... Oh, like our priests don't fuck. Every priest was fucking. They had all these Ill illegitimate children. The only reason that the Catholic Church didn't want priests to get married is because they didn't want to have heirs that could potentially inherit church property. They wanted to keep yep. all of that wealth as wow. a part of the church. So priests are still having illegitimate relationships, which, by the way, they're preaching against, but they're just having yeah. them out of wedlock. And at this time, because women don't really have rights, it doesn't really matter. Um, mm -hmm. And so another thing that Martin Luther and Henry VIII did with their Protestant Protestantism is that they're like, hey, I think priests should be able to get married. That was like a huge contention. There was like a huge point mm -hmm. of contention at this time. And all these things change. All of these depictions of wealth are seen as sinful. And people start smashing religious windows um it's actually kind of hilarious because eventually the cost of replacing the glass with clear glass stops people from destroying more things because <laughs> um, they Don't get mad break that idol of opulence that shit's expensive yeah pretty much because they're like okay <laughs> wait a minute hold up hold up hold up you guys we just broke all the windows but now it's real cold in here that's basically what happened <laughs> So in some of the churches at this time, they actually just like they whitewash over the windows. They put like mud or like um, like a white chalk mixture with tar. So they essentially like create blackout windows because they're like, we would rather not look at these false idols and destroy them than have light in our church. <laughs> Which is a pretty strong stance. Um, yes. Pettiness is a dark, dark place. Yeah, it's it's a dark time. And I mean, some of these things survive, but because, you know, so 1500s, we're seeing Protestantism come into play. Around the 1700s is the French Revolution. So like the decline of Catholicism as a religion and the the decline of the church as like a seat of importance in European culture, at least in this form, um, means that stained glass kind of has to go. Some of the churches after the French Le Revolution get turned into like stables or um, <laughs> like just meeting houses or whatever. And so all of that like religious iconography gets destroyed and gets replaced with secular you know just like shapes or colors or whatever else um so because of this very few glass craftsmen survive this era and those that do are generally people who they might blow glass they might do a little bit of glass painting Generally, they're making like these small little coats of arms for a shop or um, something that says like, hey, I'm a baker, whatever. They're making these small secular 
painted or enameled glass pieces for like people's homes and workspaces, but they're not doing religious iconography and colored glass in the way that they were. And that's part of how we lose a lot of this information. So around, I would say that by like the early 1700s, there is no colored stained glass being produced in Europe. No one is making sheets of glass. Um, but then around the late 1700s and early 1800s, there is a romantic revival of Gothic architecture and art. This is called the Gothic revival and it's inspired by writers. First of all, um, there's Ivanhoe, there's, um, what were the other ones? I don't remember all of the different texts, but there's all these like literature works that are like wasn't it great back in medieval times wasn't it like super awesome and everyone's and all these like english dudes with a bunch of money are like man i want a fucking castle that would be dope so they just <laughs> start building castles again uh and what do they want in their castles they wanted stained glass but by this time there are no almost no surviving stained glass artists in Europe. There's no colored sheet glass available to repair old pieces or to create new ones. So in 1849, this eccentric lawyer named Charles Winston, who loved stained glass, had some glass fragments he found chemically analyzed. And he also found and translated a monk. This there's this monk named Theophilius. So he found and translated Theophilius's descriptions of how to make colored glass, and then he asked some local glassmakers to make colored glass for him. So this dude, oh. Charles Winston, is credited with the revival of the stained glass movement, basically because he's a giant stained glass nerd. What and when? <laughs> what year was this? This is that in 1849. This. So and he was just like, I like that there was like, if there was a magazine back then, it would be like, castles are back. Like, you're doing <laughs> castles again, people. It's like the mid-century modern furniture of 1800. And they were That's just like, exactly. okay, let's go. <laughs> castles are back. Child labor is in. Let's do it, kids. Um yeah. <laughs> So this is sort of the, this is like this gothic revival. You have some pretty famous glass studios get get built the most famous of them is called the Meyer of Munich studio um Meyer started in Germany and it later came to America so there was an American studio there is sort of this like call back to renaissance glass so any surviving windows um are sort of taken and copied more or less people want that like renaissance or gothic style sometimes and there's a wide variety sort of of art movements happening but i would say like in the 1840s it's still pretty realistic it's very illustrative um and then world war one comes and fucks some shit up uh a lot of during Every World time War... stained glass gets built back up, they tear it down again. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, so there's the Meyer of Munich. This is in like the 1840s and 50s. There's also sort of like, um, I want to say, let me just look this up real quick because this is where things get vague for me. 
Okay, so there's a, a pretty famous artist named Harry Clark, and his work, I would say, the Meyer of Munich is more in the style of, like, old Renaissance. It's very, like, illustrative, and figures are represented, like, very realistically. And then there's there are other artists around this time. There's a guy named Harry Clark, and it's more a, a revival of sort of, like, the Gothic romantic version of Glass. Um, but there's all these sort of things happening. And then, of course, like World War One and World War Two come and they just bomb the shit out of everything. Like all of Europe yeah. gets fucked up. Churches get fucked up. Like most of the glass before this time is lost. Very, very little glass pre-World War One and World War Two survive in major cities. Um, and it's really interesting because when Germany starts to rebuild in the 40s and 50s, they have all these old church buildings where like the church, the, the stone structure might continue to mostly exist. And mm -hmm. instead of getting rid of it, they'll like rebuild that part. And they have these like huge like gothic window openings but instead of replacing them with the glass that was there that was primarily like religious, they start replacing them with more like abstract types of glass. Um, mm. And in the 50s and 60s, this glass movement comes into play. It's called Dal de Verre, which is basically this really thick slab glass that you have to cut with a hammer. Um, I have seen some artists use a saw. You can uh, use like essentially like a giant glass bandsaw and you put water on the surface. You have to always cut glass underwater if you are using a saw. But um, because otherwise the heat stress, the, the heat will create a stress fracture. So that's why you have oh. to like cut glass underwater. Oh, same as, as you're going like as you're going wheel going or the like the blade going that fast got it got it got it yeah but for the most part also you say a hammer do you mean like a chisel and a hammer or something yeah yeah okay. so doll de Vere, you essentially like cut it roughly with this saw and then you like chisel parts of it and change it it's a lot okay. more like older glass techniques and it's about a half inch thick like we said that's what glass kind of wants to be um I hate it. Uh, I think it's ugly. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like Why? Dalda Bear. Well, here's the or thing. This like is what you do. Looks. So it's this super thick glass. And then instead of encasing it in lead channels, you basically use like grout mixed with resin. So it's like oh. sticky putty. And you like uh -huh. grout it like it's tile. But it's very like uh -huh. crude looking. And like uh -huh. it's difficult to control. Um, you're not getting very sophisticated, realistic figures. For the most mm. part, you're making like these sort of like crude mosaics. Now, I know some artists who work with Dal de Vere. I think they do a really good job of it. They have more sophisticated techniques. But in the 50s, fucking everything is Dal de Vere. And it mm. is not as sophisticated and it's not very good. And I think it's ugly and I don't like it. Um, ah! You what heard it happens, here first, taking Dal de Vere to task here on Pavangard. I don't like it. It's a personal preference. I just don't really like it. And I think part of it is because you're not using, you, they're not creating figures in the way that I like figures, which is like, I prefer more realistic depictions. And I'm interested as an artist in more technical and realistic portrayals of people. Um, 
And Daldevere doesn't really allow for that because it is such a difficult medium to control. And part of that is just because the glass is so thick and you're, you know, you're using this like grout in between it, which again is like really thick and difficult to control. With Daldevere, if your grout is too thin, it's, it's essentially like sand mixed with resin. So if the grout is too thin, it'll just crack apart. So like you can't, put the glass too close together because it structurally won't endure it'll just break apart over time oh. so it's like at that point why don't you just use lead like why are you doing this why are you using the super thick glass like you're just making it so difficult and i don't understand why except for like you felt like it this is a bad alternative tool for the fusion the fusion <laughs> Well, so this, okay, so Daltavir, like, gets this, like, huge popularity in, like, the 50s and 60s. And then all of a sudden, everyone's like, oh, actually, we hate this. Mm. And so this thing that is happening now in stained glass is all of these old buildings that were made in, like, the 50s and the 60s and 70s that used either Daltavir or, like, a very, like, crude sort of stylized version of Gothic. All these churches are coming to stained glass studios and they're like we actually hate all this can you make <laughs> it good can you redo mm -hmm. our whole church and make like renaissance style windows for us or you know 19th century windows for us um because Daldevere was the low rise jeans of the 50s <laughs> art right there they were like here's the thing like we saw Mariah Carey do it and we thought we could do it but like the pictures look really bad just bring it back we want Daldevere is like the shag carpeting where they're like it seemed okay. cool at the time but it's difficult to clean and it's frankly not good like and now this van just smells horrible please come <laughs> fix my windows <laughs> Yeah, that's a lot of what's happening. Um, in like the 70s, also, the fused glass starts becoming big. There's an artist. His name is Narcissus Quagliata. He's who I learned glass fusing from. He says that he invented it. He invented it in conjunction with bullseye glass, as far as I can tell. It was sort of like bullseye glass was like, we'd like to... Half fused glass, Narcissus was one of the first or early artists to say, like, what if we made paintings out of glass? Um, mm -hmm. okay. Glass fusing is sort of like the glass of the future now, quote unquote. There are a lot of stained glass studios that aren't comfortable with it um, or don't use it as often. The studio I used to work for is one of sort of the leaders in glass fusing. Oh. Uh, and you can cut this... We can cut this if you want, Andrea, because you clearly know this person. But if you think that you're going to create a new technique with someone named Narcissus and they're not going to try to take credit for it. <laughs> Absolutely do not cut it because that is not his given name. His given name is okay. John. He named himself Narcissus. John. John. So like, yes. He knows. Okay, he, cool, cool, cool. God. He knows. He is here's what I'm gonna say about Narcissus as a human being. He is incredibly talented and like he's been a teacher and an artist for his entire life. He's now about 70 years old. Um, he knows a lot of stuff. He knows he speaks three languages fluently. He speaks Italian, Spanish, and English. Um he knows a lot about glass fusing and a lot about image making. But I will say, like, also that, like, 
he is reaching an age in his life where he wants to sort of like pass down that knowledge. And so part mm. of how I learned glass from him is that he was like, oh my God, I'm going to die and take all this knowledge with me. I'm thinking about what the rest of my life looks like and I want to pass this knowledge on. And so that's part of how the studio that I work for got him to essentially be a, like an artist resident. So he has been nice. in conjunction with the studio I used to work for, for I would say like, eight or nine years at this point and he sort of has been teaching them about glass fusing and we're at a point now where like the tech the lead technician is I would say more knowledgeable on glass processes but Narcissus's sort of like personal style and vision as an artist is something that is starting to be a big deal in glass um there's an artist named Tim Carey who also used to work for the studio I worked for. He has an online glass course that is basically like how to fuse glass. Um, okay. You can find that course. You can learn how to fuse glass like he fuses glass. Tim Carey fuses glass like Narcissus fuses glass. So it's like sort of an, a continuation of the style and tradition. Um, but I would say that like that is one way to fuse glass and think about glass. There are so many things that you can do with fused glass, but fused glass as a material is very difficult because you start running into some of the issues that I talked about earlier, which is when you make a really big piece of glass in glass fusing, the glass always wants to be a half inch thick. That makes it very heavy. If you make a glass panel mm. that's four feet by eight foot tall and you mess up one part, you can't just cut it out and put a new piece of glass there. You have to remake that whole fucking panel. Oh my God. So all of the things that stain glass traditionally as a medium was created to avoid, which is to be able to get thinner glass, to make glass replaceable, the fact that glass breaks, the annealing, all of that stuff, all of these challenges to making glass art a workable medium as a window are some of the issues that you start running into the larger you start making fused glass pieces. And so we have had issues, or I have seen issues through this studio where you make a panel that's four feet tall and then there is a flaw in your plate that causes an air bubble and the entire panel cracks. And it's difficult to fuse that back together and not mm. ruin the artwork. So like- right. There's all these sort of extra technical challenges that come with glass fusing as a medium that stained glass was invented to avoid, essentially. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> so it's like it came full circle to being a problem again. Kind of, yeah. So it's it's interesting, you know, as an artist and as a craftsman that is fluent in both traditional stained glass and fused glass as sort of artistic languages, I would say that like, knowing the medium you sort of understand the pitfalls of both and they're both really beautiful but like they both have their own sort of unique challenges um and a lot of those challenges are technical challenges uh but you can do it there's some cool stuff being made uh we'll share i'll i'll share some glass art that i made you guys can check it out i'll yeah, share it on instagram do. and stuff but um there's some really cool stuff that's happening so yeah i guess that's where we're at with glass now that's what's going on that's stained glass today with Andrea stained glass Gazette. today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. I think that's it. That's all. That I was we, freaking we amazing. Brought it. We brought it up. How long is this episode? Yeah. I want to see. Two. 
Two Dude, hours, two hours we only hot stained glass. I'm info. so sorry. I was like, it's going to be really no. short, you guys. It's just the entire history of stained glass. We could totally do yeah. that. It's like an hour 30. I got a feeling that you were so close to the end that it was just going to be a long episode. So I mentally knew what was happening. I'm so sorry, guys. I'm sorry, I no. like for so long that my AirPods died. Hold, please. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. I was really like, I was like, it's really short this time. And then we got like partway through and I was like, cool. I like skipped over a bunch of stuff and we like vamped through it. So like, it's going to be really short. And then. That's so funny. You skipped through the part that would have made it two parts, but I <laughs> loved it. So I don't think you should have left anything out that we discussed. Thank you so much for teaching us all that. And for Jordan teaching us about how time was kept in a very dangerous way um i'm so glad she spoke up about that because i legit was like reading through this just like what the fuck and then like it all makes sense now and i still contest that at the heat that they need they would be like oh well how many hail marys and they'd be like oh you'll know <laughs> you'll it's a know. lava hot imagine hell and close your eyes and if it feels close it might be ready to melt some glass um, nailed it uh yeah but thank you all so much for joining us for another fantastic episode of Pavant Guard. um if you like this episode and also want more information about all of Andrea's sources which there is an insane amount that it will not let me put in the oh, comments before um, we email leave let us. me let me like briefly list some sources I'm so glad you reminded me Katrina yeah yeah, yeah go um, so brief sources, we have uh, a lot of Wikipedia, history of glass. Um, I have industrialcontainer.com slash how glass is made. I have Hertz.com article called King Tut Beads Found in 3,400-Year-Old Danish Graves. Um, there's worldhistory.org. Uh, I have an article about the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Vox.com is also about the fall of... It's called Roman Empire Maps History Explained. I have a sci-fi news article about the oldest obsidian tools. Um, a chem.chem, sorry, chemd.chempurdue.edu about glass as a material. More Wikipedia, Scientific American about the factor fish, fiction is glass a liquid. Um, it's not, it's just, a, it's a solid but it's not really a solid. You guys get it. Uh, you just Bullseye. answer one of your sources. <laughs> okay. The The title of the article is like, are glass windows melting? Because there was that whole controversy of like, the they would find, they found glass panels where like the top was thinner than the bottom. And they're like, oh, that's because glass is a liquid. And it's because it like over time, it's like flowing. That's not true. It's just because when you mouth blow glass, the glass itself is uneven. Like you can't mouth blow something to a perfect diameter. Yeah. So parts of it are going to be thicker and thinner. And when glaziers put the panels together, uh, the you want the thicker part on the bottom because it supports the weight better. So, uh, And I do want to give a side note that I'm very proud of, at least myself personally, for not making any lowbrow jokes about how many times you have said mouth blow <laughs> and rod. <laughs> And everything else in this episode, but please continue. <laughs> oh, yeah. Another thing I didn't say is that when you mouth blow glass, it's called 
muff glass. Yo, get out of here. No, that's what it's called because the you basically exactly make like a doing. super long vessel and then you cut it down the middle and like open it up to create the glass and it's called a muff and so it's like called muff glass. It's very sexual. Everything about glass blowing is sexual, which is also like the kind you would what keep your hand is hands in when it's cold i think that may or may not be a muff but mm, yes i'm still <laughs> that's that's probably where it got its name is because it's like for warming your hands it's called a muff it's like that long cylinder and that's basically right. what you're doing when you make glass is you make a long cylinder and then you cut it down the middle and open it up to create a sheet um my immature giggle stands <laughs> <laughs> uh and then there's just a bunch of wikipedia articles mymodernmet.com article called stained glass history britannica.com article about the history of europe in the middle ages um and then of course stainedglass.org resources about the history of stained glass so a lot of resources on this one hilarious i'm so sorry um, this was such a long yeah, no. episode no but thank you so much for giving us some of your sources um andrea you can hear the rest of them or get the rest of them upon request at our email pavantgarde at gmail.com because Andrea is so thorough they will not let me put all of the information that she accessed in the episode information. So well much like our Lisa Frank episode. So that's how <laughs> thorough and badass our podcast is. It exceeds the character limit. Um, Hell yeah, dude. But thank you all so much for joining us for another episode. Uh, if you want to follow us and see um all of the other art information that we shared during the week and um other comics that love art listening to our podcast and us talking to each other um follow us at pavant guard p-o-d-v-a-n-t-g-a-r-d-e um on instagram and twitter and we have yeah. a facebook group oh yeah, yeah. And also if you like me as a person you can follow me at katrina savad s-i-v-a-d it's just davis backwards but yeah andrea tell them about facebook and stuff oh my god guys please come hang out in the facebook group it's just podvant guard uh facebook group uh you have to answer some secret questions to get in but let's talk shit let's share memes we're having a good time in there there's some people hanging out and i'm actually really excited so far people have shared some really interesting articles and facts in the facebook group and also some pretty great memes so i'm really excited about it um if you like this show please come hang out jordan promises me every day that she'll get a facebook just so we can hang out with her more <laughs> so it hasn't happened yet i'm just saying it would be fun uh but that's pretty cool and then we also have a hold on a second we have a P.O. box. If you guys want to send us art history books, if you want to send us weird memes in person, if you want to send me a box of glass, you can send that to 1001 Fremont Avenue, number 366, South Pasadena, California, 91030. Um, 
And we also have a Patreon. So if you guys want bonus episodes, uh, we're going to try going forward to have at least one Patreon episode a month. And it'll be kind of like the news episode that you guys heard last week where we just do like a loose news thing. Um, kind of more fun. And obviously, like as the Patreon grows, we would love to expand the bonus content that we include. Uh, but if you want to help us pay our editor, which we would really, really, really appreciate, uh, you can find that Yay, at Patreon. Yeah, we love you, Elliot. <laughs> thank you elliot he listened to this whole episode you guys uh you can find that at patreon.com slash and if you like me as a human person individually and you want to check out some of the stained glass art i've made you can check that out on instagram at andrea gazetta uh if you want to support my art personal things i have prints and necklaces and cool things for sale at andreagazetta.com i also have my own patreon with exclusive stickers and behind the scenes bonus content if you want to be part of my close instagram stories at patreon.com slash andreagazetta and uh if you like making stained glass talk to me about it because i'm a nerd and i haven't gotten to make glass in like three months so i want to talk about it <laughs> Are you fiending to talk glass, Andrea? Talk glassy to me, baby. <laughs> well, You're a glassy the pod, girl. <laughs> after the pod, I'll hit you with some leaded glass facts about wet specimens. Um, <laughs> that sounded so... You can't so say sexual. wet specimens and expect me to not say anything, Jordan. What is going on? <laughs> yeah, what is this, Jordan? I have questions hilarious we'll talk actually maybe i'll save it it's not art related maybe i'll save it for a patreon episode uh if you like me (laughs) jordan lee williams i am on instagram i promise i will make a facebook i do i promise um but i'm on instagram has her etsy shop up yeah so uh i'm on instagram at the goonie bird for my stupid face and my art account if you want information like i can't shut the fuck up about uh different ways in which textiles have changed societies uh that's goonie bird crafts and that is also the name of my etsy store goonie bird crafts the link is in the bio on both of my instagram accounts and i have earrings and embroidery and i make blankets uh i'm adding some eyeglass chains today because i'm a librarian <gasps> from the 1930s hell yeah so i want to yeah. look Speaking 70 years glass. old <laughs> so excited for this i legit like i love the idea of not losing my glasses that's so beautiful i'm really excited for it i'm glad they're coming back Oh, Katrina, will you talk about... Katrina also has another podcast and a cool project coming up. Do you want to talk about that real quick, as long as we're oh, here? Oh, Katrina, you talk about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, I guess Come so. Um, I have, like, the longer video will come out on December 31st, but I'm doing a, basically, like, a experimental comedy set where it's inspired by Maria Abramovic's, um, Marina Abramovic's, uh, the artist is present from like 2010 or whatever. So I'm going to have 50 people come up to me and I will just sit there, but whatever they want to do for that 60 seconds, 
I just sit there and take, and then when all 50 participants are finished, I'll do 50 minutes of comedy based off that. Yeah, it's really fun. I'm really excited. I got to help shoot a promo video and made a horse noise. So like, I'm excited yeah, about it. Yeah, and- Andrea's <laughs> in it. It's going to be super cool. It's called The Comic is Present. Um, And my website is Katrina Savad too, but it's just like katrinasavad.com backslash TCIP. But you can, if we're friends on Instagram, it's like in my link tree and all that. But yeah, so that's something that I'm working on for February. The show itself isn't until the beginning of February, but tickets will go on sale at the end of this month, December. Yay. And um, yeah, so that's cool. Thanks. And then, yeah, my other podcast, it's called The Best Friend Show with Katrina Davis. Um, There's a lot of podcasts with best friends in it, but... It's bright blue. You'll see it. Um, Yeah, where I interview sets of best friends about their friendship. And uh, so far, it's been super fun. It's been a lot of comics, but some that aren't comics that have amazing best friends that aren't comics. Every episode has been different. And yeah, it's been really awesome so far. Uh, But it's more of, I guess, just a human interest thing. Yeah. And talking to people about their friendships. But it's fun because people will say things to me that they wouldn't necessarily say to their best friend. I've had people that have been friends for like almost a decade learn stuff about their best friends on the podcast. Oh, so, I love that. Yeah, it's fun. That's amazing. Yeah, that I had so Alan happy. Strickland Williams and James Fritz on. And James was like, oh, yeah, in college, like I was in a band. And Alan was like, I didn't know you were in a band. And they're like grown <laughs> men that have sleepovers. So, yeah, it's fun. <laughs> That's really cute. That makes me so happy. Oh, I have some heartwarming ass episodes coming out. Like oh. I, uh, I'm i going to work on having them come out every Wednesday. It's pretty good. Yeah, that <laughs> makes me super happy. I love that so much. I love you guys both so much. I love you listeners so much. Uh, thank you so much for listening. And yeah, we'll see you next time. We love you. We love you. We Bye. love you. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, Andrea here. Um, I'm asking for your help a little bit today because Jordan, Katrina, and I are all comedians and artists who don't have any experience editing sound. And because this is a sound-based medium, we have asked an editor to help us with our episodes. Um, We had a few issues early on with some of the early recordings and we're working on getting those sorted out. Um, And... Part of that is just having an audio engineer. So in order to be able to actually pay him and pay him a fair rate, uh, we're asking for your help. We've set up a Patreon, patreon.com slash podvantgarde. And our goal is that we can pay him not from our own pockets, but from the resources of the show itself, which means we need your help. Um We're also planning on starting to release bonus episodes. We'll start with one a month. Um, And as that Patreon rate increases, we'd like to eventually expand that to a bonus episode every week. And the bonus episodes will be more, um, a little bit more loose fit. We'll be covering 
art uh like current events and weird things that happen because there's a lot of like weird stuff going on in the art world right now um especially around nfts especially around ai and i think it's really interesting and worth talking about but we just need to be able to pay someone to edit that bonus content. Um, I would also say that in terms of the time cost, you know, Katrina, Jordan, and I all are supporting ourselves outside of this show. This show takes a lot of time. I'm probably spending at least three days a week with every episode just researching. We're buying books. Um, Katrina's editing the time codes. She's building our website. She's doing all our social media. Jordan is also researching her own episodes. And my goal for the Patreon is just that it can become something that, you know, we're not looking to get rich. I don't think that's ever been our goal. I don't think we ever think that could be our goal. But what I'd like to be able to happen eventually is that the Patreon can become a way for us to just pay ourselves a living wage for the time that we invest into this show. My experience uh, with Cult Podcast um, is that it's really hard to make a show every single week and not have other financial resources. So what I want is that this Patreon can eventually become a financial resource for us. It can help us support ourselves and it can help us to continue putting the show out so that we don't get burnt out and want to pull our hair out. Um, we love you so much and we think that the show is really important. I personally think that we need more podcasts that cover history and art history from a feminist, anti-colonial queer perspective and that's where we're coming from as artists and as art historians and comedians we love you we love this show thank you so much for supporting it that's again at patreon.com slash and thanks guys <laughs>